0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Russian Revolution, A View from the Third World, by Walter Rodney, edited by Jesse Benjamin and Robin D.G. Kelly, with a foreword by Vijay Prashad. In his short life, Guyanese intellectual Walter Rodney Emerged as one of the foremost thinkers and activists of the anti colonial revolution, leading movements in North America, Africa, and the Caribbean. Wherever he was, Rodney was a lightning rod for working class black power organizing. His deportation sparked Jamaica's Rodney riots in 1968, and his scholarship trained a generation in how to approach politics on an international scale. In 1980, Shortly after founding the Working People's Alliance in Guyana, the 38-year-old Rodney was assassinated. Walter Rodney's Russian Revolution collects surviving texts from a series of lectures he delivered at the University of Dar es Salaam, an intellectual hub of the independent third world. It had been his intention to work these into a book, a goal completed posthumously with the editorial aid of Robin D.G. Kelly and Jesse Benjamin. Moving across the historiography of the long Russian Revolution with clarity and insight, Rodney transcends the ideological fault lines of the Cold War. Surveying a broad range of subjects—the Narodniks, social democracy, the October Revolution, civil war, and the challenges of Stalinism—Rodney articulates a distinct viewpoint from the Third World, one that grounds revolutionary theory and history with the people in motion. The Russian Revolution. A View from the Third World by Walter Rodney, edited by Jesse Benjamin and Robin D.G. Kelly, with a foreword from Vijay Prashad. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The United States exceeds at perpetually waging wars that are destined to fail to meet their purported objectives. The war on terror is one such war. The war on drugs is another. In both cases, failure never leads to much official questioning of the war, let alone a repudiation of its underlying wisdom. The conventional wisdom is always that the war just hasn't been waged in the right way or aggressively enough. My guest today is Leo Bilecki, who directs the Health and Justice Action Lab at Northeastern University. He and Jeremiah Gulka recently published an op-ed in the New York Times calling for either the reform or abolition of the DEA, noting that after hundreds of billions of dollars spent, fatal overdose rates have skyrocketed to a historic high. Say it with me, tweet it with me, demand it with me. Abolish DEA. Before we get started, we need your support at patreon.com slash the dig to keep this podcast up and running five dollars a month and you get access to our newsletter. Ten dollars or more, and I will send you a copy of either Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism or Assad haters mistaken identity. Twenty dollars or more, and I have a bunch of left wing books to send you. That's P.A.T.R.E.O.N.com slash the dig. Okay. Here's Leo Bilecki, an expert on the public health impact of laws and their enforcement, with a special focus on drug overdose, infectious disease transmission, and the role of the criminal justice system as a structural determinant of health. Leo Bilecki, welcome back to The Dig.
1: Thanks so much, Dan
0: before we get into the details, can you explain in short the way that the DEA allowed for this disastrous situation on so many different levels? First, allowing for the rise of prescription opioid abuse, simultaneously incentivizing the rise of fentanyl, this incredibly potent deadly opioid through the through the very drug war interdiction activities that are supposed to purportedly end illicit drugs, and then also somehow at the same time actively restricting access to the treatment that might save the lives of these people that the DEA has played such a central role in getting hooked on opioids in the first place?
1: You know, it's a little bit of a, um, a kind of a time sequence question and, and an orchestration question. And I think, you know, it goes to the, to the very core of the critique here, which is the DEA um, you know, regulations requires a lot of calibration and balancing. Uh, you know, various tools that you have at your disposal uh, as a reg- regulatory agency. Sometimes that means, you know, um, focusing enforcement resources in one area or another, uh, using discretion to allow, you know, some flexibility to allow uh, activities that are, you know, maybe in a gray area, um, and and just orchestrating you know, various components of the regulation when you're trying to deal with a complex system, which the, you know, sort of substance use and addiction uh, uh, picture in the United States certainly is. So with that in mind, you know, the agency has been uh, absolutely abysmal at calibrating the various activities that it undertakes. Um, And in many ways, you know, that has been extremely harmful. So, as you mentioned, the, um, you know, the the prescription drug supply, which the DA has a lot of ways of controlling from the very, you know, making of the drug to its uh, uh, dispensation at a pharmacy um, and all through that that supply chain. Um, So, at first, the DA basically allowed um, and and did not sound any alarm bells that I'm aware of uh, when the supply of opioids started skyrocketing. Um, and this happened early in the, in the 21st century. Once overdoses started surging and there were increasing concerns about what was then called the prescription drug crisis, the DAA's reactive regulation was to start cracking down, and this is a term that they use a lot, on that supply. And they did that by going after providers. They did that um, by going after distributors. They did that uh, by uh, going after the drug manufacturers, uh, not DEA specifically, but uh, the Department of Justice, of which DEA is a part. And so this coordinated response, with along with other state and local actions, law enforcement and otherwise meant that people who had been on prescription drugs um had a harder time accessing those medications. Sometimes, you know, they, they had no business being on those medications. Sometimes they really did need them for pain um or um for addiction treatment. And it meant that en masse by rapidly decreasing supply or making it harder for people to access those medications, um, it meant that a lot of people uh, transitioned to the black market. Now, the supply reduction measures were not the only measures that that, um, spurred people to go to the black market. There were a number of what are called push and pull factors. So By restricting supply, we pushed people into the black market. But there were also pull factors uh, that that made the black market more um, more, uh, just a rational, you know, in a way, a rational choice. Because um, prescription drugs uh, are are somewhat difficult to acquire, and black market drugs are less difficult to acquire, and they're cheaper.
0: You don't need a prescription. You just need the right person's phone number.
1: Exactly, and I just wanted to—I want to point out this is not often often said—that that the reason why black market drugs are more plentiful and cheaper is that the GA and the, the tactics that it has funded and otherwise supported um, have failed the the that black market, if you believe the sort of the doctrine of supply control through you know punitive and criminal justice approaches, that black market should not exist, and and yet it's it's extremely prevalent. And at a time when a lot of people dependent on opioids were finding it harder to access those drugs, the fact that there was a ready Supply of the medications and of heroin on the black market is an indictment that that um that these taxes these tactics had not worked during during that time so the sequencing goes that you know you had a major influx of new users into the black market at the same time as heroin use started going up and heroin related overdoses overdoses involving heroin went up. Once that you know that once that sort of entered the perspective and the purview of the DEA and of policymakers, there was a huge push to. And this is you know this happened under the watch of the Obama administration. Um, there was a huge push to increase interdiction at the border. And this is not you know directly DEA. This is a uh, you know CPB customs. And- Customs and Border Protection and uh, Coast Guard, there was a huge influx of investment and staffing in those agencies. Um, There was also a push to um, uh, go, you know, to pursue international interdiction activities, um, which, by the way, helped to fuel the drug related violence in Mexico. And that's something that, you know, we probably is an opportunity for another. Another conversation, but suffice it to say that there was a major uptick in interdiction efforts, and also you know just the fact that there were so many more people um there was much more demand for heroin um that would uh that that was just a matter of time until drug trafficking organizations realized that there was a you know major business opportunity that where they could make um a synthetic substitute for heroin which you know heroin production is a fairly labor intensive and not 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 necessarily the most certain uh you know uh, it's an agricultural activity so if you can replace that with a uh you know a much more stable and cheaper and faster production uh um process which uh you know where you replicate the Substance with a synthetic sub, uh, synthetic alternative um, that 's exactly what happened so it was a rational economic response to both increased demand and the difficulty of you know increased difficulty and risk of getting getting drugs transported into the United States when you have you know a container st- uh, a, a container space to transport drugs into the United States. If you can fill that with heroin, um, you can generate far less revenue than if you can fill that with fentanyl. And that for the is,
0: same reason it, that during prohibition, smuggling alcohol prohibition that smuggling hard liquor was far more economical than smuggling beer. Beer takes up a lot of space and. For the amount of intoxicating punch it packs
1: exactly exactly, which is why we have the cocktail culture that we have we you know before prohibition, Americans didn't really have a taste for cocktails. This is a reason why when you go to a hipster bar, people look like they're you know walked out of the time of prohibition. <laughs> I guess one way to think about the the opioid issue is that you know there 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 are a number of on ramps into opioid dependence and opioid addiction and that includes black market and uh and prescription drug supply uh through you know sort of legitimate prescribing although the the legitimate prescribing route is is fairly low i think you know that people misunderstand that but but the reality is that there's also an off-ramp. And that off-ramp, you know, maybe paradoxically for some people, also uh, goes through opioid prescribing. So there are two drugs, uh, methadone and buprenorphine, that are, that are FDA-approved for uh, maintenance of people who have opioid use disorder, who have, you know, problematic opioid use. So they allow people to regain control of their lives and essentially, you know, normalize uh, their lives that are being harmed by chaotic and compulsive use, um, they do require you to be, you know, on a regular regimen of opioids. But for all intents and purposes, people who are on maintenance can function normally. And that, I think, kind of cuts a. Cuts against a lot of people's assumptions about what opioid use is. Um, the so this off ramp is unfortunately very very difficult to access, and the reason why it's difficult to access has many many different elements. But one of the major elements is that it's regulated by the DEA, and um, true to its drug control focus. The DEA's approach to regulating methadone and buprenorphine is much more focused on sort of restriction rather than a public health imperative to make these drugs as available as possible to as many people as possible. Um, There are a lot of people in this country who need access to these drugs and would benefit from having access to these drugs. And they do not. And, and, and the blame, the lion's share of the blame, r- lies with the DA's regulation
0: um, of them. So what exactly does the Drug Enforcement Administration do, and why does it exist?
1: So the Drug Enforcement Administration is really an artifact of the war on drugs. It was created at the time when Richard Nixon was announcing and um, building the the war on drugs um, and really is a brainchild of the Controlled Substances Act, which was passed in 1970. The mission of the DEA uh, is somewhat complex in that it looks like a traditional law enforcement agency uh, charged with, investigating, attacking, and dismantling drug trafficking networks. And it has internalized that mission very, very thoroughly in that I think most people, if you ask them about what the DEA does, is they, they'll say, you know, they'll, they do drug busts uh, at home and abroad, and they seize, you know, shipments of, of drugs and conduct uh, various operations to disrupt and dismantle drug trafficking networks.
0: The kind of thing we see in Narcos.
1: The kind of thing that you see in Narcos and many other, you know, traffic and other representations on the, on the screen, big and small. The more complex picture, though, is that the DA actually regulates a huge proportion of our pharmaceutical and healthcare activity in this country. And I think most people don't realize that. So the DA issues permission for drug manufacturers to make certain controlled substances. Um, and And this is directly applicable to the opioid crisis, because you know the story goes with the opioid crisis that that essentially drug uh, drug manufacturers started ramping up production and were uh, essentially flooding the market with these medications starting around uh, nineteen ninety five nineteen ninety six and this is an area of drug manufacturing activity that is directly under the purview of the DEA, and the um, uh, the other elements of regulation that the DEA um, uh, is supposed to have the reins on include the distribution of controlled substances, so drug distributors, um, how these drugs are prescribed, who is able to prescribe them and how they are dispensed uh, through pharmacies. On the other hand, you know, this is where the sort of the Narcos DEA interfaces with the healthcare DEA. DEA is also supposed to oversee the supply chains of these prescription drugs to prevent diversion, so to stop the flow of medications onto the black market.
0: And it's precisely on that that latter that ladder function that a lot of media has been criticizing the DEA for not taking firm enough action on. That's been the big story around the opioid crisis in the last, I don't know, year or so. Right. So,
1: yeah. So the Washington Post, Lenny Bernstein and colleagues colleagues uh, did some stories with, uh, there was a whistleblower, I think his name is Joe Rizzo, who who had pointed out that the DEA was sort of coming under the thumb of the pharmaceutical industry around 2010, 11, 12, when there was a law that was passed in Congress that kind of uh, made it more difficult for them to uh, regulate. This is specifically drug distributors, not so much the manufacturers, but the distributors, and that... There were certain actions to substantially cut you know ask the distributors to cut down or even you know just get them to sort of um, practice more um, cautiously in distributing drugs to various pharmacies so for for example, if you had a pharmacy that was that looked like it was um dispensing way too many. Uh, or requesting way too many opioids that the that the um the distributors would sort of um exercise caution and start asking hard questions about why that would be um so that story is i think interesting in that uh, you know there's certainly a measure of truth to it in that the entire pharmaceutical regulatory system that we have is substantially captured by industry. There's no question about that. That's true of the FDA. That's true of the DEA. And we should be asking hard questions about what is the role of industry in regulating how drugs are researched, how they're approved, and then how they're marketed and distributed. The problem with that narrative, however, is that it, it, tries to shift the blame from the regulator onto the um onto the sort of big evil pharma um unfairly i think the blame rests with both and i think that you know the idea that ha- you know if only the da had the ability to you know rapidly uh restrict the supply after years of letting it go essentially unchecked um i think that idea needs to be challenged because that's exactly what the da did in many other realms aside from this you know minor sort of corner of distribution regulation and that kind of response has had really severe unintended consequences so in other words the story with you know the story has gone that had only had da not been captured by industry, had it not been muzzled by industry, they would have engaged in this, you know, rapid decrease in the supply, and and the, you know, that would have fixed the problem.
0: Because before it was before the purported, you know, full capture <laughs> took place, that the DEA was also not doing much to regulate the exactly, supply. That...
1: exactly. the The problem is is that the DEA, you know, essentially missed the boat. They sat on their hands for a long time. The problem you know, the cat was out of the bag. And dealing with the situation at that point, at that juncture, by doing what they proposed to do and saying, you know, well, pharma stopped us from doing this, that would have actually uh, arguably caused more harm.
0: And in fact, there there have been measures to sharply restrict the prescription of of opioids. And while I think everyone can agree that that prescription opioids got way out of hand, There, we do have evidence of what a sharp, a sharp squeezing off of that supply after the cat was already out of the bag, the sort of damaging consequences that can lead to.
1: Exactly. And, and I think that needs to also be contextualized in the reality that we have a thriving black market for opioids and we've had that market for decades, uh actually centuries. Uh so so in the context of black market alternatives, which the DEA has summarily failed to control, uh the activity around foreign, you know, because the GA essentially regulates both sides of the market, both the pharmaceutical market and the black market. And
0: they've ironically managed the pharmaceutical side with the sort of laissez-faire, soft-touch regulation. And then the illicit side, they have attempted to repress with the full force of the U.S. government and tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars to try to eliminate illicit drug trafficking and ironically the the very combination of their their regulatory and enforcement roles on on both the legal and illegal side of the market have in both cases and in a way that's reinforced each other in this twisted manner contributed in significant part to the opioid overdose crisis that we see today
1: i'm glad you're recording this because that needs to be written down what you just said yeah exactly i mean it's you know the da uh, and this is what I tried to communicate in the piece is that you know this crisis is uh uniquely um it, it is an indictment of failures on both the pharmaceutical and the black market sides of our drug supply and the agency that oversees both of these elements of the drug supply is the DEA and other agencies play a role and other, you know, both on the federal, state, and local level. But there is a imperative that was, uh, you know, that led to the creation of the DEA, which is to regulate access for legitimate medical research purposes to control substances at the same time as controlling their diversion and misuse and and that is precisely where the opioid situation in the US is a total morass we are not providing adequate access to opioids on the one hand and on the other hand we are doing a horrible job at controlling misuse and diversion um and you know other kinds of uh, uh negative consequences of, of uh overdose uh of opioid access so um you know this is a unique uniquely uh, damning situation to the ability of the DEA to kind of you know calibrate those those two imperatives and um, and I think the conversation really hasn't been had about what has been the role of the DA in the crisis and how you know with the DA at the helm, the country has sort of made a number of of wrong turns and and that has led us down a road where we find ourselves today, where you know overdose continues to surge. And the drug supply continues to be increasingly dangerous. And even though you know there may be some hopeful signs, especially in certain states, um, that the crisis is leveling off at a you know an extremely elevated level, um, the distinguishing characteristics with the states that have made progress is that they have, despite DAs and um have scaled up access to uh, opioid drugs that reduce overdose. Um, so these are buprenorphine and methadone, um, which the DA also regulates in ways that are hugely counterproductive. So, you know, this is another sort of little known fact, but um, maintenance treatment with methadone and buprenorphine um is probably our best hope aside from locks on some other interventions in in bringing the epidemic under control because if you're on maintenance treatment with um methadone and buprenorphine your risk of overdose um if if you have opioid use disorder uh substantially um is slashed by half or more
0: what's the dea's role when it comes to these evidence-based harm reduction techniques that can improve and save people's lives, like buprenorphine.
1: Well, so the DA licenses and oversees the provision of buprenorphine and methadone because these um, two drugs are, you know, based on stigma and misinterpretation of the evidence have been singled out as uh, especially prone to abuse and diversion The DA exercises special authority and tightly regulates how these these services are provided. And as a result um, of the of that regulation, as well as you know, not to say that this is just a problem of the DA. There are many barriers to access, including things like insurance and zoning and other kinds of things. But but um, but the DA substantially. restricts access to especially methadone but also buprenorphine for the purpose of of, um, uh, opioid agonist therapy uh, for the purpose of maintenance of people with opioid use disorder. And so um, the fact that only about 10% of the people who can benefit from those therapies have access to them, that lays at the feet of the DEA um and and the da has done very little to facilitate access to these medications and that's that's a you know that's an indictment that really needs to be much broader understood and and arguably the da really has no business uh regulating that section of of healthcare it has done a horrible job uh and and its its activities have been hugely un, uh counterproductive
0: so this is really r- remarkable i just want to pause and, and and underline how the DEA is involved in extremely harmful ways on three different levels when it comes to fueling the opioid crisis first they had a laissez-faire approach to regulating a hands-off light-touch regulatory approach to the prescription opioid distribution system that they were in charge of and then Secondly, they waged a war on illicit drugs that actually incentivized the rise of fentanyl, something dozens of times stronger than heroin and far more lethal. That has become the, the leading cause of overdose deaths, I, I believe. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. And then on the third level, actively stood in the way of restricting access to the treatment that could actually provide a pathway for people with opioid use disorder off of heroin or fentanyl or Oxycontin onto something far more safer that will not kill them.
1: And in fact, the way that it has gone about doing all those things together at the same time has made a particularly deadly cocktail because you would, for example, expect you know when the DA comes into town and wants to shut down a pill mill, uh, you know, a, a drug uh, prescription drug provider who is arguably you know exercising, uh, not exercising judgment and prescribing you know large amounts of opioids. When you shut down a pill mill, um, you basically leave all of the patients of that particular provider, as well as, you know, arguably many others who were maybe benefiting from drugs being diverted, uh, or, you know, taking advantage of drugs being diverted, you expose those people to the black market, because what are they going to do? People with opioid dependence and addiction don't, can't simply, you know, snap out of it. They need Uh, They need treatment. And by restricting treatment at the same time as they were suppressing the drug supply on the prescription side, they facilitated the transition to the black market that we now know occurred, you know, starting in 2008 um, and still continues to this day.
0: This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond, and you can support it on Patreon.com. Hey, this is Dan Denver, the host of the podcast that you're listening to right now. One way we keep the show up and running is by advertising books that our listeners might want to buy from publishers like Verso and University of California Press. If you yourself work at a publisher and want to advertise books on the show, or you're an author of a book that you think that your publisher should be advertising here on The Dig, please email me at daniel.denver at gmail.com. My last name is D-E-N-V-I-R. I I can say with some confidence that there is likely no other podcast out there where you can find so many people who want to buy left-wing intellectual and academic books. So please advertise with us. Thanks. And now back to the show. Let's turn to the proposal that you advance in the op-ed, which is minimally, dramatically reforming the DA, but ideally and maximally abolishing it. Lay out the case for what meaningful reforms might look like, and if we could accomplish it, why abolishing it might be better altogether.
1: I think it would be limiting to say that you know, we can abolish the DEA and live happily ever after. That's that's not really an accurate, you know, it's not a realistic approach. I think that the problem is much deeper. I think that the you know the legislative underpinning of the DEA um is the Control Substances Act, which is a an extremely antiquated piece of legislation that's baked in misinformation and stigma about uh, substance use and addiction. Uh, it's, an, it's, it's essentially a criminal statute that masquerades as a public health statute. I think we need to scrap the Control Substances Act and rethink you know with public health as a north as our north star and reducing the harms of substance use while also making sure that people who need access to to control substances have um access to them we need to rethink that legislation i think re- rethinking that legislation also includes a reorient, reorientation of the kind of the instruments of its of drug control, of of proper drug regulation. And DEA is the main instrument through which the Controlled Substances Act uh, is implemented. Um, you know, the agency itself, I think, uh, you know, a law enforcement agency r- really has no business conducting regulatory Activities when it comes to it should be the f d a it it should be the f d a it should be um you know uh, medical and pharmacy boards it um you know there's 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 so many elements of what the d a does that it really doesn't doesn't do any of those things very well if you use you know metrics that aren't sort of self fulfilling like how many people you arrested. You know the amount of drugs seized.
0: This is the crazy thing about the drug war: is that that's all supposed to be; those are all those metrics are all supposed to be means to an end, which is eliminating the illicit drug trade and keeping people safe from drugs. But because those outcomes are never met, and in fact things are we're at we're experiencing historic fatal overdose rates these days. Over the years in the drug war, the the metrics measuring the means to the end, have, without anyone, without people even really realizing it, come to stand in for the end in and of themselves.
1: These are proximate endpoints that are supposed to connect to the ostensible goals, but they just never do. And so they, as you said, the DA has exceeded at, you know, law enforcement in general, and this is true beyond drug control, has in general... You pulled the wool over the eyes of the public and the policymakers by reframing the conversation around you know essentially our productivity metrics are we get to define what our productivity metrics are, and by defining them, we're gonna focus on the kinds of in a way meaningless meaningless activities if they do not, in fact, connect to the end goals, such as, you know, um, decreasing substance misuse, decreasing diversion, decreasing uh, overdose rates and, and other harms from drugs. Like if if the goal of your agency is to reduce the harms, then you need to rethink how you measure your success and that I think that is the conversation that we should be having about how we the architecture of drug control and what agencies are in charge and how they do the work that they do so so I guess the the answer the long the short answer to your to your question is that yes the DA needs to be completely revamped and or abolished um but the bigger question is what are we trying to accomplish here and how do we how do we meet those goals
0: it seems to me as though abolishing the dea would do a, a lot of good in the sense that they have the taken discretion the discretion that they're given by statute to do a A lot of horrible things that on an agency level build on themselves and are compounded based on kind of institutional path dependency of a of an agency entirely dedicated to fighting the drug war. So eliminating that agency and that bureaucracy that's set on autopilot to do to commit such disastrous, uh, implement such disastrous policies, not only across the United States, but throughout the world, that that would do a lot of. lot of good, but that's still what you're saying is that the DA is still a creature of of the drug war and that if we even abolishing the DEA does not in itself abolish the drug war there are still plenty of other, for example, federal law enforcement agencies that would pick up the slack. And neither does it answer the question as to what positive things, instead of all these negative things, that the US government should be doing to help keep people safe and alive
1: yeah i mean i think that broader conversation needs to happen uh you know i think connecting it to politics i would hope that you know in the next couple of years we start having that conversation and i think it's been it it has been stupidly defined around you know are you pro or against uh you know legalization or decriminalization and and um although i understand that you know that sort of conversation helps compartmentalize things the the reality is that opioids amphetamines and other you know fairly addictive drugs are already legal we have an entire system for the manufacturing, distribution, and and provision of potentially, you know, potentially harmful substances that are also that also have a lot of they can do a lot of good, and so the conversation needs to be much broader than are you in favor of legalizing, you know, legalizing drugs. Um, it, the whole the whole building is broken and it's and it's broken partly because it was built on a very faulty foundation that foundation was based on stigma on racism and lies and you know the the recent uh op-ed uh in the New York Times opposing the opening of safe injection facilities in several US jurisdictions is a great indication and a great illustration of how you know there's just such huge path dependency and and this sort of um idea that that law enforcement officers are somehow should be in charge of setting public health policy
0: Leo Bilecki, thank you very much
1: thanks for listening to me rant
0: Leo Bilecki directs the Health and Justice Action Lab at Northeastern University. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after being informed that it was opioids that turned out to be the opiate of the masses, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends and family about the show. Please. And please do find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a big help.